and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. In all my years of wearing it, I never asked myself about the origins of the Miss Dior fragrance. I just assumed the name was a canny bit of marketing. But it's much more than that. In Miss Dior, for the first time, British biographer Justin Picardy tells the story of Catherine Dior, the beloved sister of French couturier Christian Dior, her remarkable courage as a member of the French resistance during the occupation and the inspiration for that scent. With unparalleled access to the Dior archives and homes, Picardy retraces Catherine's steps from her bourgeois family and the rise of her talented brother as one of France's most influential designers and cultural ambassadors to Catherine's secret mission and subsequent time in Ravensbrück concentration camp. I spoke to Justine in London via Zoom. Justine, you've been steeped in the world of fashion for quite some time. You've written a biography of Coco Chanel. You know how the world of fashion works. It's quite a closed world in many ways. Did you find that your previous experience helped you navigate it to tell this story? Yes, definitely. I Actually, after my biography of Coco Chanel was published, I received an invitation from Dior to look in the Dior archives with a view to perhaps doing a a biography of Christian Dior. So that was a direct response to to my Chanel biography. But with both books, um, I was completely editorially independent of firstly Chanel and then Dior. I mean, it's incredible to be given access to these archives. And with Chanel, I was the first person to be given full access to the Chanel archives. But I did also need that sense of editorial independence so that I could write kind of freely um, without the sense that I was being commissioned to do something by the brand today. Exactly, because I do feel that one of the problems with biography in the world of fashion is that it is often this kind of breathlessly reverential hagiography. So having the freedom to not have to um, endorse a brand and sort of um, gloss over the things that might be embarrassing, I think, is really important. I'm very curious, given that you've had the privilege of access to the Chanel archive and to the Dior archive, What's the difference between them in terms of the way they're set up and they're organised and what do they look like? Give us a sense of them physically. Well, they've changed over the years. When you think that at the first time I looked at the Chanel archives, which would have been in the late 90s, you know, they weren't digital at that point. Um, What they... I mean, and and obviously, in in both cases, much of them are still not digital because the actual artefacts in them, the couture pieces, the perfume bottles are physical objects. Um, And the physicality of those objects is is very compelling. Um, it's, It's very potent to be looking at, for example, you know, the original Misty Or bottle um, or the Misty Or dress, which is a 
beautiful couture dress that is covered in, you know, thousands of exquisitely handmade, hand-sewn flowers. So I think the physicality is, is, well, as it would be in any archive, and I've worked in archives actually on, on all of my books, um, but I suppose the, the beauty of what is in those Chanel and Dior archives is extraordinary. Now, you said that you thought that you might be writing a biography of Christian Dior. So did you did you discover Catherine's story in the process of researching Christian? And was her story not very widely known in French fashion circles? Well, it, not only was it not widely known in French fashion circles, it was not widely known anywhere in the world. Um, and yes, I did discover her story in the process of writing about Christian's story and and the two I mean the, the book is is not a biography of Catherine Dior it's called Miss Dior a story of courage and couture and it explores the relationship between the siblings as well as this idealized vision of sort of French elegance and beauty that is Miss Dior um, who emerges in the aftermath of the of the humiliation and ugliness of the occupation of France um, after the Second World War. And then I, w- I also wanted to explore the stories of all those women like Catherine, whose voices were silenced either because they, they died or because nobody wanted to hear their stories when they returned from the German concentration camps and why there was a kind of collective amnesia about what had happened to these women. Absolutely. It's a very, very dark episode in French history, which seems to still be unresolved in many ways. So that that leads me to ask you, Justine, do you think that there's an irony to the fact that you, as a British writer, as a British biographer, got the opportunity to do this. I mean, might not this have been a story where you would have assumed that Dior would have wanted a French person? Maybe it was easier for a British writer to be able to look at this very dark episode in France. I mean, it. the irony has been noted um, when the book came out in France, where it, it has a very... Um, positive and warm reception I think both in Liberation the the French newspaper you know that was set up originally it was a paper of of, that represented the resistance and then Le Monde I think both noted that it's taken a a British writer um, to explore this story though I do have a connection with France Um, my name is French and I, there were members, um, a few French relatives still, you know, still surviving. So, but I think that perhaps what was more important was having a feel for the subject matter, that very often mainstream history is about, the his, especially when you, it's looking at war, is the story of, of men, of of generals, of politicians, of of soldiers, of, of presidents, and that the story of women is is still 
too often marginalised. And I think that mainstream history often does not look at fashion as if it's somehow irrelevant or, or frivolous, whereas because of my own sort of interests and experience, I, I know it's not. It was Virginia Woolf, who's a writer I admire, who in Orlando, you know, which is presented as a biography, wrote, you know, clothes change our view of the world and the world's view of us. But I think that because it's been ignored by others, it has left that way very open for me as a writer to explore. Dior wrote his own memoir. Now, there's a, a quite a large age gap between him and Catherine. He's 12 years older than her. Does he mention his sister in his memoir? Yes, he does. And interestingly, she's the only one of his siblings that... Um, I mean, he, he mentions his brothers very briefly, um, but Catherine is there um, more often than the other siblings. It's interesting because it, the memoir which he wrote just the year before he died. He died unexpectedly of a heart attack in 1957, and he wrote the memoir in 1956. And it's a really interesting piece of writing. And it was translated from French to English by Antonia Fraser, um, you know, and it, it was her first sort of serious commission. And I'm a huge fan of of Antonia Fraser, and I've talked to her about translating um that memoir and and then when she my publisher sent her a, a an early copy of Miss Dior for her to read and she said how fascinating she found reading Miss Dior particularly having translated Christiane Dior's own memoir she said it it made her understand that that Miss Dior the scent which was one that she'd born ever since she was a young woman is the centre of history but how it had emerged out of this great darkness Let's talk about her childhood and adolescence she was quite a solemn child her mother died when she was 13. So what was she like growing up? Well, what's so interesting about Christian and the way that family has been presented in the past was as this very kind of solid bourgeois upbringing. But I think that, and, and I'm sure in, Christian was born in 1905, I'm sure before the war, you know, there was this great sense of solidity and, and prosperity. They were the children of... Um, their father had inherited the family's fertiliser um, manufacturing company and they lived in Granville on the coast of, of Normandy in a, in a large villa overlooking the, the English Channel... Um, and what's interesting is that the name Dior at that point was associated with the sort of stench of the factories. So if the wind was blowing in the wrong direction over Granville, the, the townspeople would say, oh, you can smell Dior today. And <laughs> Dior was the, the, the stench of the fertiliser factory. 
But I think that if you read Christian's memoir, there is a sense of darkness even from the start. You know, they live on top of this this granite cliff top where their mother has created an, a beautiful garden against all the odds. Um, but, you know, winds and storms blow off the sea and there are railings to protect the children from these very high cliffs. And I, I've been to, to the house, which is now a museum, on a number of occasions and looked at the archives there and, and written there. And it is quite a haunting place. And it's it's next to a cemetery where their mother was buried. She died at of septicemia when Catherine was just 13. But even before her death, there's this sense of the sort of long shadow of of darkness, um, first of all, the First World War. And I think it's really important to remember that the First World War was fought on French soil. And, you know, there were battles that took place not so very far from Granville. And the oldest boy in the family, Raymond, joined up when he was just 18, uh, just a few months after Catherine was born in 1917. And he was the only soldier in his platoon, not to be killed um, on the battlefields. And he suffered from shell shock and the after effect of of poisoning from, from poison gas and never really recovered and was quite estranged from his siblings and from his family. And then um, Bernard, the other brother, developed schizophrenia, um, which was untreatable in those days. And was institutionalised. And and then, um, just after their mother died, their father lost all his money in the aftermath of the Wall Street crash. So the house in Granville actually couldn't... Nobody bought it. It ended up in the hands of the town council. And Maurice Dior, who went from this really... I mean, rich industrialist is absolutely penniless. And Catherine and their father and her former governess, who sort of stays on um, as a companion, really, are living in this tiny little farmhouse in, in rural Provence, in absolute isolation, no running water, no electricity. I mean, that is a massive amount of disruption and change to live through. And interestingly, at this point, Christian, who has a, a modern art gallery in Paris, um, his art gallery goes bankrupt, actually not one, but two. And he'd shown extraordinarily visionary aesthetic taste. He was showing Dali and other surrealists and then, you know, during the Great Depression, nobody wants to buy a Dali. And paintings that would, you know, go for millions, several hundred million today, he's lucky to sell. He sells one Dali, The Persistence of Memory, for $250. Just And then the, the, the gallery goes bankrupt. I mean, The Persistence of, of Memory, I think the last time it was sold was for $150 million. So Christian teaches himself to draw fashion illustrations of a way of making a living. And as soon as he is able, 
um, Catherine comes to live with him in Paris. And they, you know, after a huge amount of loss and disruption, they nevertheless have this period of sort of freedom and independence living together. And I think that it's a sign of how close they were, despite the age difference, that first of all, they're living together in this sort of little hotel in Paris where a lot of bohemian writers and artists and designers are living. And then, and he gets her a job at what's called a maison de mode, selling accessories. And she's his first model. So there are pictures of her in the archives. And this is before Christian Dior is Christian Dior. He's a freelance designer. But there she is as a young woman, you know, modelling his early designs. And then he gets a, an apartment in Rue Royale in Paris and she lives there with him. So they have in the late 30s this period of of happiness and freedom and independence. And there's a picture of Catherine in this period that I reproduce in the book. And she's not looking solemn at all. She's smiling. She looks very happy and and carefree, you know, and young and and independent. Absolutely. That that photograph really struck me because the pictures of her later in the book are very solemn with good reason. But you as you say, there's a real joie de vivre and a real vitality to that first picture of her. She looks so exuberant and full of potential, which leads me to ask you, Justine, it's all very well to be selling accessories in a shop or whatever, and Christian had found her this position. But if the war hadn't come along, what do you think she was planning to do with her life? She was still so young. I mean, when you think war broke out in 1939, um, she was just 22, I mean, who knows what she would have done. Um, she was interested in art and she shared a love of art and music uh, with Christian. She was interested in politics. She shared a love of gardening with Christian, which both of them had inherited from their mother. But at 22, you know, in 1939, who knows what she would have done, perhaps something in fashion, perhaps something in the arts. Um, we just don't know. Am I right in thinking that really she was prompted to join the resistance by her affair with someone who was this rather charismatic, very handsome hero who was already a member of the resistance? Well, Hervé de Chabonnery undoubtedly played a role, but I think that she had already undertaken her first act of resistance before meeting him, and that's really important, which is that she went to try and source a radio um, to listen to General de Gaulle's band broadcasts on the BBC calling on the French to join the Free French and to resist. So it's really that is a really important act that she undertook of her own volition, which had nothing to do with Hervé. It's what led her to meet Hervé by um, going to get this radio. But just by going to get this radio to listen to Charles de Gaulle was itself enough, if she'd been caught, to have been arrested and sent to prison. So that comes first. That first act of resistance it is is really important at the age of at a very young age. 
So is she, she's 22 when she does that? No, she would have been 23 when she did that. 23. OK. And Justine, would she have told her brother when she did that and subsequently when she made the decision to actually join the Résistance, would she have told Christian what she was doing? I think that he, when she first joins at the end of 1941, that is when um, he had just gone back to Paris to start working for Lucien Lalong, a couturier in Paris. Up until then, they had been growing vegetables together, actually. Christian had been in the French army um, when was called up when war broke out. And then when France fell, he made his way back to their father's home in Provence, as as did she from Paris. And there they grew vegetables together because, you know, there was no food because of, of rationing. But they did go to Cannes together during that period, both to sell any extra vegetables they had, but also to see friends. So... They clearly, um, they were so close that I think, you know, they would have shared those those ideas of, of democracy. I mean, neither, neither of them were pro-Vichy France. In fact, Christiane, as a gay man, um, would have been seen as, as, you know, utterly decadent by Vichy France. And Catherine, by being independent, would have been seen as, as immoral by Vichy France. So they were close enough to have understood what, you know, each other's actions. But then when she first joined the resistance, Christian was in Paris. But then she, in 1944, um, receives a coded message from her resistance network telling her to go to her brother, Christian, in Paris. And she lives with him again in Paris in the same flat that they'd shared together before the war. And at this point, he would have been very well aware of her activities because he was sheltering her in Paris. And some of her colleagues in the same resistance network, um, you know, they were holding meetings in Christian's apartment in Paris. So he was definitely aware of what was happening and was also at great risk himself for having um, sheltered his sister and her comrades I think, you know, one of the most fascinating aspects of your book is the way you give us a kind of forensic sort of analysis of how couture houses continued to operate during the occupation. What's fascinating is that that is the the sort of general idea insofar as anybody has thought about couture during the occupation but actually it's much more complicated than that so yes there were some Germans um, who were buying couture for their wives and girlfriends and mistresses but they are in the tiny minority the majority of couture clients are French and some of them will be the the wives of of French officials um, and collaborators and you know, black marketeers as well. So what were called the the BOFs, um, beurre, earth and fromage, butter, eggs and cheese, which were the things that were impossible to get hold of 
due to, to short food shortages and rationing and the people that could supply those and other black market goods got rich. And as in any war, there is money to be made. So the French who got rich, you know, their wives and, and, and girlfriends were couture clients. And there is always money swilling around in wartime. Um, and those were the couture clients. So the uncomfortable truth is that there are a lot of French clients. That means that Christian Dior was playing a real double game because he had those clients and he was doing well out of those clients himself whilst he was also sheltering his sister and fully aware of what she was doing, or if not fully aware, aware. Yeah, I mean, I think he was doing what so many people in Paris did, which was to, you know, do what it took to survive. So he was working for Lucien Lelong. You know, he wasn't directly getting the profits of this. He would have been on a salary. Um, but there's a really telling quote which I use in the book which came from Pierre Balmain's memoir so Pierre Balmain and Christian Dior were both working for Lucien Lelong and Lelong was clearly a great talent spotter in that both of them went on to set up their own very successful couture houses and Balmain who became very good friends with with Christian Dior says that they were watching from behind a screen a show and and looking at the Couture clients, uh, Christian said, just look, all these women who are going to be shot in their Lelong dresses, i.e. the liberation will come, Paris will be liberated, that the Germans will be defeated, and these women who are the wives of collaborators will be shot. It's, it's, it's a very, very telling and memorable observation. mission, Justine, what what exactly was her role within the resistance? Because there are obviously different layers of responsibility in terms of passing messages and various other activities. So what was she primarily engaged in? Well, the resistance is such a fragmented, it's not a single network, you know, it's made up of many, many different um, groups and networks. And the network that that Catherine was part of was called F2. And it was set up originally by two Polish intelligence officers with the Polish army, who in 1940 had found themselves, had been fighting with the Polish army in France and found themselves behind enemy lines, did not manage to join that um, evacuation from Dunkirk. And so set up a very, very early resistance network and recruited French members of the resistance and it was an intelligence network so rather than you know blowing up railway lines or or shooting germans they were involved in a very active and important intelligence gathering network that was supplying intelligence to the allies in london so um both to british intelligence and to polish intelligence who 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 they had their Polish headquarters in London, as did the Free French. And Catherine was involved both in 
gathering information. So she would have been one of those young women on a bicycle cycling, you know, for hours on end, gathering information from different agents. Um, she would type up intelligence reports on a little typewriter that she kept until the end of her life. And these would be transmitted to London, either by um, wireless radio operators, or sometimes um, they were shipped out on tiny little boats. So her role was both as a as a courier and an intelligence gatherer. And she was she had a significant role. She was described as one of the, the bravest members of, of this network. And of this network, there were about 2,800 members of whom about 25% were women like Catherine. Um, but she was she was seen as, as a very significant member of the network. So now we come to the really dark, dark heart of your book. I found this you know, this is hard going, some of this to read. It's very painful. How was Catherine captured by the Nazis? Well, she was betrayed by a French collaborator, a young woman about the same age as her who infiltrated the network. And Catherine was amongst about 300 members of the French resistance who were captured in the summer of 1944 by a particularly vile Gestapo unit called the Rue de la Pompe Gestapo that had a German leader but was made up mainly of French members of the Gestapo or Gestapistes as they were called. And Catherine on July the 6th was arrested, blindfolded, bundled into the back of a car and taken to Rue de la Pompe which is in the heart of of bourgeois right bank Paris and taken to this truly terrible place where she was tortured um, on two occasions and she didn't give away a single name so in doing so by remaining silent she saved the life of her brother Christian her lover Hervé his family um, and her best friend Liliane who was also in the the same resistance network and everybody else in the network who'd not yet been captured. And she was then imprisoned in um, a, a prison on the out, a French prison on the outskirts of, of Paris and then moved to an internment camp and finally deported on the last train of deportees out of Paris, which was just days before Paris was liberated. And she was deported on a, a train of sealed cattle trucks to Germany. There were about 2,000 men who were sent to Buchenwald concentration camp and about 400 women who ended up in Ravensbrück concentration camp. And she arrived in Ravensbrück on the 22nd of August after a journey of of a week um, with you know, no, no drink, no, no, no water, no food, uh, no sanitation, and a number of of people died on that journey. Uh, but Catherine was amongst the, those women who survived and arrived in Ravensbrück, which was Hitler's only concentration camp designed specifically for women, and a, and a truly terrible place. 
in terms of the way this history is known and acknowledged now, is there a plaque? Is there anything on any building in the Rue de la Pompe that acknowledges what took place there? No, there's not. Um, and it's one of those addresses in France where, you know, you walk... I mean, I, I felt that actually even before I wrote this book. I'm not sure why, but whenever I walk around Paris, I've been aware of its its Second World War history, the fact that, you know, these streets had Nazi flags flying above them. And, you know, these these streets in the heart of, you know, the city of light become these places of such darkness. And, and yeah, there are no plaques that mark any of the Gestapo addresses in, in Paris. it was in Catherine's character or in her sort of physique even that allowed her to survive how did she get through the Ravensbrook experience when so many did not I think that that you know luck must have played a part I think that she was young and strong you know she was in her 20s uh, she'd been not only growing vegetables, but also kind of cycling all over the place. So she obviously had a, a sort of physical strength. But she also, um, I mean, but, you know, they lost their physical strength very rapidly in Ravensbrück and in the slave labour camps because they were on starvation rations. And she was part of a programme called Extermination Through Labour, where prisoners were literally worked to death. Um, but I think that she clearly had a very strong spirit. Um, I interviewed somebody who had encountered her, somebody who was just 14 um, and whose little sister was 13 when they'd encountered Catherine and the other small group of French women in the resistance in a slave labour camp. And she, they had met each other in February 1945 and were together until, you know, the the Allies uh, liberated the camps and in April 1945. And she said that that Catherine and the other French women um, taught her and her little sister to do the V for victory sign. And also that Catherine was still resisting, was still engaging in acts of resistance by sabotaging the the machinery that they were forced to work on in the slave labour factories that were, you know, armaments machinery. So by inserting, you know, tiny little flaws and sabotaging the machinery that she was still resisting, um, still, which was a huge risk to run, but I suppose to continue to resist was was a way of retaining her sense of agency, really. And that... She said that Catherine was the captain of her own soul, um, which is such a wonderful description. So I think that that independent spirit that would not be crushed, that everything about the Nazi regime was about um, dehumanising their prisoners. But if your spirit remained unquenched, 
as it was in Catherine's case, that somehow that gave her the strength to survive. And she said that the two things that she said about her time in the camps was that if an SS officer or a guard would sort of throw a piece of food to the ground, that she would never, unlike some people, drop to the ground and scrabble for that piece of food because she knew if that if she did that, she would die. And that she would look at the sunrise and the sunset and she was determined to see the sunrise and the sunset, you know, in her own beloved land again. When she eventually returns from the war, she is extremely reserved and she doesn't talk about what happened to her. And it seems to me that you've had to navigate in writing this book someone who was very almost invisible. You've had to sort of conjure up someone who's almost intangible. Was that very, very challenging for you? Well, she didn't feel invisible to me. She felt like a very powerful presence. And the way that I was able to write about her was by going to the places where she had lived and where she'd been. So the sort of sense of place is very important to me as a writer and always has been. Um, Margaret Atwood, who's a writer I love, says that all writing is an act of negotiating with the dead, which really speaks to me as a as a writer. And yes, her her silence is a very powerful part of her, but silence was was the thing that by remaining silent, she saved everybody that she loved most in the world when she was being tortured. The silence that then surrounded her about her experiences after the war, I think that there is more than emblematic. I think it is the embodiment of the silence that prevails about the experiences of Catherine and and other people like her right across France. There is a collective silence. So I suppose I was trying to explore why why is there this silence? And whether it was by going to, to Granville where they grew up and and being in her bedroom there, being in the playroom there, which is in the garden, I had a, a strong sense of her uh, going to to Rue Royale, where she had the apartment where she'd lived with Christian and this little attic, hidden attic, where she and members of the resistance had had hidden. Um, And then going to Ravensbrook was incredibly important for my sense of her and following her trail from Ravensbrook to a series of three slave labour camps. So I really kind of went and walked in, you know, in her footsteps and then I wrote in Les Nice, which is the farm that she inherited when her father died in 1946 and where she became a rose grower. Uh, the roses that she grew there were for Misty Orr, the perfume that was named after her by her brother. But she continued to grow roses for Dior until she died at the age of 90. And her rose fields are still there today. And, you know, I wrote there, surrounded by her rose fields. And then when Christian died in 1957, he left his house, which was very close to hers, La Colle Noire, to her. And she lived there 
for a time. It had to be sold because Christian um, had substantial personal debts when he died in terms of tax to the French government. But she lived there for a time and I actually slept, you know, in her bedroom there. So she didn't feel invisible or intangible to me. I had this sense of her great strength um, and that she still survives today in the form of, of her roses. You have inserted yourself into the narrative, so we learn quite a lot about you in the telling of the story of Christian and Catherine. I'd never, as a writer, want to, to write as if I'm this sort of omniscient, godlike narrator, a sort of historian that knows everything, because I, I don't know everything, and I don't never wanted to sort of make anything up and assume that I knew in a kind of godlike, omniscient way. Um, and I also didn't want, because there are some very painful episodes in this book, and I didn't want the reader to feel that it was too unbearable to read. So I wanted to take the reader on a journey with me. And just as, for me, it was very, you know, I was terrified at the thought of going to Ravensbrook, just for myself. I didn't want to go to this very dark place but I did go there and so I wanted the reader to feel that they were able to come there with me as a as a companion and you know much to my astonishment in this this dark place there is beauty you know there is the rose garden in Ravensbrook which I discovered and I have to be the person that describes that in the book because I'm the person that describes it, you know, in the present tense, because very few people know. I mean, the Rose Guard is not part of the history of Ravensbrook, and I just stumbled across it. Very few people go to Ravensbrook. It's not like Auschwitz. It's not one of the places that is a places of pilgrimage. On both times I went, I was practically the only visitor there. Um, but there is a rose garden that was planted by some of the survivors who returned to plant roses on the site of a mass grave where ashes had been left. And they planted these roses for their sisters, their mothers, their daughters, their best friends. And the roses, to my astonishment, which were blooming at the end of November when I went to Ravensbrook for the first time, were bred by a French woman who'd been in the resistance like Catherine and they're called Resurrection and they were they were bred there they were bred in order to survive these very harsh winters and there is this resurrection. Now I had to write that in the first person because I discovered it. fascinating aspect of Christian and Catherine's lives post-war. He goes to Germany. He sells his clothes in Germany. She never buys anything German, not a pencil, not a car, nothing. Do you think that when he went to Germany to sell his clothes, and he was doing a kind of, I suppose, what we would now call soft diplomacy, 
very, and it was very much seen as a diplomatic effort. Yes, and, and the French government wanted him to do it and it was a revenue earner. But do you think that this caused her enormous pain and that she showed extraordinary self-control in not saying anything, not judging him, not criticising him? What do you think was going on there? I mean, it's really hard to know and I didn't want to speculate. You know, I feel such respect for Catherine that I didn't want to speculate. I think that it clearly their love for each other was so profound that it could encompass this decision on his part. It was absolutely unwavering, their love for one another. But I think that their positions represent these these two very different opposing positions in the aftermath of the Second World War. One is rebuilding and the economic miracle that takes place in the post-war, which Christian is part of. So Europe lies in ruins. There is... Um, you know, these countries are bankrupt and their infrastructure lies in ruins. The railways, the ports, the harbours, the factories, everything has been bombed. So either you undertake reconciliation in order to rebuild and you think, well, there were people in Germany who suffered too. Uh, and indeed, there were German women in the camp at Ravensbrück and there were you know Germans who died because of the Nazi regime obviously there were many German Jews who died but there were also members of the German resistance of of there were good Germans so by accepting and acknowledging that uh, as as Christian did by going to Germany in 1955 you take that kind of hopeful stance of looking into the looking ahead or like Catherine who never went back to Germany couldn't even bear to see a German number plate on the road if she was in France because obviously tourism opens up and there were German tourists in France would never buy a German car or a German household goods and I understand that I mean Siemens had a slave labour factory in Germany, um, one of the slave labour factories that Catherine worked in was was BMW for making aircraft engines. So she couldn't forgive. But both of those feelings, as represented by Christiane and Catherine, are, I think, understandable. And that both of them, they are what they are. You know, they're, they're, I think that for Christian, there's a line in his memoir where, um, or one of his pieces of memoir writing, when he says that what he does, you know, as Christian Dior, but both the, the fashion and beauty, is it's an expression of civilization. And he says in this machine age that it's worth this ancient kind of civilization, which is about you know, the handmade, really, whether it's couture or the beauty of a fragrance made of flowers, which are 
harvested by hands you know everything is sort of touched by human hands that it's a civilization that is really worth fighting for believing in it's it's not just frivolous and I can see that there is a kind of there's something very radical to still believe in beauty after a time of of such ugliness much of that is thanks to Catherine the the Dior archives which is where this story begins that is thanks to Catherine because she kept the couture pieces that he made for her but he, she, she also kept all of his drawings all of his illustrations everything that he left to her um in his will as what he called his moral heir you know she preserves that artistic legacy and it is one of beauty she doesn't destroy it thinking well it's what's the point in all this beauty and she respected him as an artist as well as loving him as a brother and as her closest friend so there is something in her and then she is the person who in the 1990s is um, becomes president of the first Christian Dior Museum, which is in Granville in their family home. So her own loyalty, as well as her belief in his greatness as an artist, is what one of the reasons that Christian Dior's legacy is still alive today, and why there's ar- those archives where I started, you know, my research and where our conversation begins are thanks to Catherine. First, I thought this biography was a little thin when it came to Catherine's presence, as she remained shadowy throughout her long life. On a closer reading, I realised that it tells a subtle story about a close relationship between a brother who lived his life out in public and a sister whose life was about secrecy and seclusion. It's also about the terrible events that took place in France during the occupation, which are still a source of debate and shame today and about the redemptive power of beauty. Perhaps because of my own French heritage, I found it moving and troubling. The French are not especially interested in biography, so it feels entirely appropriate that an outsider, i.e. a Brit, should have been invited to tell the story of the Dior's. Fashion biography is fertile ground, as it brings together the world of creativity, business and industry in a unique combination. It's about so much more than glamour and frocks. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to its traditional owners. The show is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Louise Osborne. Music is written and performed by Amanda Brown and licensed by Lily Pilly IP.